It's all about winning. Winning with raw power. Earning the right to celebrate your team's dominance. Our beloved metropolitan area is pulsating with the energy of tonight's clash between two football teams. Teams I won't mention by name since one of them isn't the Vikings. (laughs) But it's been fascinating to witness the crush of bodies. The focus that has descended upon the Twin Cities these past few days. If you're not aware of the intensity of this focus on the Super Bowl, it's not because you're not a football fan, it's simply because you haven't gone downtown recently. Displays of power on a lot of levels are everywhere. Military hummers are scattered throughout the streets. They're joined by a stunning array of police vehicles and police presence, including the random assault assault rifle slung over the shoulder of a wary officer. Meanwhile, there's the limousines that are running the rich and the famous back and forth from one venue to another. And then there's those venues, more food and entertainment lighting up our fair cities than one can fully fathom. It's a power display. Military, national and local police agencies, the rich, the famous, the movers, the shakers, all here. And then there's the fans, uniting to cheer on their teams in a winner-take-all contest of raw human power. Well, it's all a lot of fun. And of course, all pretty meaningless at the end of the day, isn't it? As big and bold and brash as it all is, it's little more than a passing diversion. It is amusement. And yet, this riveting focus bears witness to a deep longing in the human spirit. It's a longing to unite with others in some grand conquest that really matters. The cheering of the team, the bringing together of all of this power, even the helmets running into one another, it's all part of a, what, something deep in us that wants to win, that wants to cheer, that wants to say, this matters. This is big stuff. And here we are, gathered this day as Jesus' followers. And what have we been singing We are uniting in fellowship around the cosmic power of the gospel. And nothing less. Our gathering is fueled by the most victorious power display in the world. That the world has ever witnessed since creation. And that is namely, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. On Easter we have often sung, Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph or His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and He lives forever with His saints to reign. And exploding from that cosmic victory, we gather as a redeemed fellowship, rejoicing in the life-transforming power of the gospel at work in our lives and at work in lives of people throughout this world. 
This message, this piece of news, this conquest of the ultimate foe, death. This is our identity. This is the conquest that rivets our attention. And it's no display of merely raw power. It's a power that transforms lives. It's a power that will speak for eternity. Last week, and I invite you to Romans chapter 1, we considered the first seven verses of this book by way of introduction. And it gives us the summation of the gospel here. The Apostle Paul writing to the Roman believers. He's not met them, but he communicates to them the gospel. We come to verse 8 this morning in Romans chapter 1. And the personal, unifying fellowship that this gospel secures comes to the surface now. Wherever the gospel is announced, there is a gathering, a connection of God's people to one another around this theme, around this message. Sketching out the broad parameters then of the good news of Jesus' birth, His life, His death, His redemptive mission, Paul displays now that unifying, fellowship-creating nature of the gospel. We see it here in verse 8. We kind of observe it from a distance, and yet it draws us into this very same consideration. Verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Remember, he's never met them, but this interaction with them reveals much about the nature of the gospel. In verses 8-17, through 17, we are edified by observing two characteristic evidences of a life centered on the conquest of the, of the gospel. We could state the first one this way. There's a spirit of fellowship among gospel believers. And that just comes to the surface here in these first verses. A spirit of fellowship among gospel believers. First, not first in a list, but before I get into the body of my letter, let me say this first of all. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you. The merits of Jesus... On those merits, Paul can praise God for his brothers and sisters. The reason for this thanksgiving, as verse 8 continues, is because, you see the connecting word there, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. We have no evidence that any apostle had ministered in Rome. I think there's good reason to believe that the apostle Peter had not ministered in Rome, although tradition Uh, draws attention that way. It's not really supported by the evidence. Yet Christ, with no apostolic presence, was winning a people for His name there in Rome. And Paul rejoices. Now when he says here, your faith is proclaimed in all the world, that doesn't mean they had proclaimed their faith in all of the world. And all of the world doesn't mean, of course, every person across the stretch of the planet had heard about it. But it's just saying, in the world... That is known here where the gospel has spread among the Christians and various churches throughout the empire that are popping up in infant uh, gatherings. They have heard about you. They know the gospel has reached Rome and they celebrate what has happened. And I give thanks to God that this message has reached you. Everywhere Paul went, Christians were talking about the victory of the gospel in Rome. And so Paul thanks God for them and further describes his prayers in verse 9. For 
God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. God is my witness. God knows. The God I serve is my master. The God I serve with my spirit, I think the idea there is to the very core of my being, with my body, of course, with my mind, but with my very spirit, this Lord that I serve, He is my witness that I am unceasingly praying for you. And of course, that doesn't mean that prayers for them go through His mind all the time, but regularly and frequently, I am thanking God for the victory of the gospel in your lives. I thank God, in fact, now for you. Why these regular and frequent prayers? Verse 10, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now there's certainly much for which he thanks God concerning the Romans, but now getting personal here and getting to their relationship, I want to come and see you. 4 verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. There's only one explanation for longing to visit people you've never met, and that's that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's something, at least, that would draw people together to say, I want to be with you. I want to see you. There's some shared value, some shared purpose. And Paul says, I I long to be with you through the common bond of Christ. He's closer to them than, let's say, to his unbelieving family members. He's closer to them than if it was the case that he was with neighbors all the time, that he knew very well. Anybody outside of Christ, he's closer to these people he's not met because of the common bond that they have in Jesus. And specifically, he says here, I want to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul does not explain what that gift is, but I don't think that we should assume that he wants to bestow upon them the ability, let's say, to speak in tongues or to prophesy or something like that. We could assume that, but there's really no indication of it in the text. Spiritual gift here may be used not so formally, but simply to profit one another spiritually in that sense. What the text says is that the gift would strengthen them, and that's the main point. That is, it would strengthen their faith in God. And Paul expands on the meaning of what he's saying here in verse 12. That is this. That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So whatever the spiritual gift is, whatever that means, Paul's not explicit. But the point is to build one another up in the faith. And Paul assumes also that they will edify him. Now that's an amazing statement. He has been an apostle preaching the scriptures as Christ's official representative for a quarter century by this time. This church in Rome, these believers there, they have never received apostolic instruction directly. The Spirit of God has saved them and they are as saved as anyone else in the church. But here are these people that he might look at as somewhat backward in the faith somewhat unschooled yet as they ought to be. In fact, that's what he wants to do is to come and fulfill teaching among them and build them up in the faith. And yet he says, you're going to strengthen me.
The basis of this confidence is that they have life in Christ. They are walking with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And whenever believers come together, it doesn't matter how long they've been converted, there is that shared spirit and there can be mutual edification as we talk together. Paul's confidence does not rest on the fact that he knows them. His confidence in this rests on the fact that they know Jesus. And so when I come with you and I gather with you, we will build each other up in the faith. That's what he anticipates. That is a normal Christian relationship. It's not to talk about all peripheral things that have nothing to do with the core of our very being, Jesus Christ. Normal Christian conversation between people builds one another up in the faith in Christ. Our interaction, our relationship with one another is to do that. I've never traveled overseas representing this assembly and preaching the gospel and failed to meet brothers and sisters in Christ for the first time, yet who build me up. It is always a time of encouragement. And the key again is that we share the same Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells within us, dwells within all believers and teaches God's Word. So there is a a fellowship that we pick right up into the middle of it as we come and meet people for the first time. Wherever faithful believers meet, faith-strengthening seeds are planted. Wherever faithful believers talk, the Holy Spirit labors between us to bind our souls together. So Paul returns to his desire to meet them. As he continues here in verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. It's not for any lack of desire on my part. I want to get with you and meet with you. And the purpose for that, verse 13, is in order that I may reap some harvest among you, Literally, that I may gain some fruit among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he wants to minister God's Word among them in such a way that believers grow in godliness. And I think it includes that unbelievers would come to Christ. Now that can sound like kind of a dull statement. I'm a teacher. I hope to come to you to teach. But when you love the gospel, when you are engaged in the victory of the gospel in this world, you long to see it spread and to edify God's people with it. Wherever you are to release the power of the gospel as we speak that message, as we represent that message, is a love that we will naturally have. This desire that Paul has to speak God's truth to them, is fueled by a deep-seated sense of calling. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I want to get with you. I've tried to get with you. I've not been able to at this point, but I long to come and to be mutually edified in our faith and to... Fulfill the work of an apostle to build you up and teach you God's Word. I long for this. In fact, I'm under obligation to do it. To Greeks and barbarians, that's to the cultured and the educated. 
as well as to the not-so-cultured and the not-so-educated. To the wise and the foolish might just be a parallel statement to that, referring to the cultured and the uncultured. But the point is, whoever, it's just a figure of speech, I am indebted to all people to proclaim the gospel. I'm under obligation to do so. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. We might ask under, in what sense is Paul under obligation? Is this kind of that guilt trip? Uh, I know I need to do this and I haven't gotten around to it, so I really hope I can visit you soon and share the gospel with you. Is it that? If you borrow money from somebody... You owe them something. Or maybe they've done a favor for you and there's kind of an understanding that you're going to return the favor. Some of you, I hear, uh, share babysitting responsibilities. So the kids go to one house one night and then they go to the other night. So if your kids have gone to somebody's house for the evening and the, you're supposed to return that favor, you're under obligation, right? You, you, yeah, we've got to get around to that. We need to get that night set up and do that. Something along those lines. Or maybe it's even just money. You're just in debt. You have an obligation to pay someone. Kind of get a sense of that spirit. That's, that's what obligation is. That's not what Paul's saying. That is not what Paul is saying here. Think of this. We think of this kind of obligation. You're an aid worker that has been hired to go, and in fact you are excited to go and help some individuals who are suffering through the results of a hurricane. And you get on assignment, you fly into this place, wherever that is, and they they give you a truck, and it's full of food, and it's full of water. And your job is to go find people who are in need of food and water and to help them and to deliver the goods to them. You are under obligation. Now, is it a hateful obligation? No, this is what you want to do. You're excited about it. It's going to be work. might even be a little dangerous, but you want to do this. You want to deliver these goods to people. That's why you're here. You're thrilled to do it, but you're under obligation to do it as well. It's in that sense that Paul wants to take the gospel to them and wants to take the gospel to all people. I have the goods. We have the goods of the gospel. We have the message of salvation in Christ and we have the privilege to take it and speak of it and interact on it and fellowship in it. That's where Paul's heart is here. And do you notice here he's eager to preach the gospel to believers? We don't find that often in the New Testament. It's a very unusual phrase. Generally, gospel is proclaimed to unbelievers, but I think here he is actually saying that. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you believers. The gospel is not restricted to the conversion of the lost. The good news of Jesus crucified and risen is a theologically rich message And I'm convinced that we will spend the rest of eternity seeking to fully understand it. So let me say it this way, just by way of practical application. Christian, are you discouraged today? Are you confused? Are you frustrated about something? Are you struggling with sin or loss, or trial? Do you lack wisdom in an area where you desperately need it? 
I don't believe there is anything that you can do more fruitfully than to contemplate the gospel and its implications to God's people. It is in the work of Christ, crucified and risen, and what Christ does with that, that is our hope and the solid ground that we experience anything in this world or the next. Root your life in the implications of the gospel, and you will root your life and your soul on bedrock. What are we seeing displayed in these verses? In Paul's thanksgiving for the Romans and in his desire to minister among them, we witness a living display of the fellowship that binds together partners in the gospel. We just see these indicators of it, these illustrations of it. You have fans of a football team that, that, that they, they, they demonstrate who they are, they celebrate together, they get together in groups, and they are excited about their team. It's just a faint reflection of the oneness that we have in Christ and the fellowship that develops as we understand the gospel and what he's doing. Paul and the Roman believers are not merely fans cheering on the same team. They are brothers and sisters bound together by God's Spirit, redeemed by Christ's conquest. There is a deep understanding of one another. There is a love in Christ that unites them, even when they've never met. I long to be with you. I long to build you up. I long to minister the Word of God to you and to be built up by you, to partner in the Gospel. Oh yes, and I want to just even meet you. It's amazing. There's just nothing in the world that's quite like this. This deep longing and love for people you don't even know because they know Jesus. My recent visit to China, I went to build up some pastors of unregistered churches and wasn't an entirely secretive meeting, but we were careful on a number of levels to not draw attention. And um, As I came into the meeting place, there was kind of a plan to sort of show up at different times so that it wouldn't be a crush of people coming into this one building and drawing that attention. And it so happened on the first day that I came walking in without the leader and translator present. There's about 25 men sitting in the room that I've never met before and we can't speak the same language. And I I don't, I mean, you talk about awkward. It was really awkward. Uh, It was, I'm coming out of the cool climate here into a very warm one and I'm sweating profusely and I'm puffing having walked up the steps and and for a lot ways and and, and I'm just like, hi? (laughs) And nobody can speak. They all kind of just look away. It was just the most awkward situation. And I thought in that moment, this will end soon. And it did. It always does. There's an awkward moment when you meet somebody that you don't know, but when you begin, and thankfully through a translator, when you begin to talk about your Savior and you begin to talk about the life in Christ, there is always a oneness. There is a power there that draws you together in fellowship. And these individuals who didn't want to look at me 
We were very awkward. It was really strange. Just within a matter of a few days, there were individuals there that I never could have a conversation with that had tears streaming down their face because I was leaving. That's Christ. That's the bond that's so deep within. It's not about the individual. It couldn't be. They have no idea who I am, what my interests are, what's unique about me. No idea. No attempt necessarily to share that. But when we began to talk about Christ and what He has done, the bond was deep. And I just think of that, and I think about it, about my neighbors and the people that I know that don't know Christ. If I want somebody who's got my back, it's not the people I spend all the time with here that don't know Jesus. It's with the people I don't know that know Jesus. It's a deep bond. Such gospel fellowship is no fiction. It's real. There's something you know about such people that you trust and have confidence because you know their Lord. You know what he's doing in your life. You know he's doing it in their life. And it brings us together. And let me just venture off. I think of faithful application of what we're seeing here, though not directly on task with, the, with Paul's message here, but how off base then and out of sync this principle of partnership is with Christians who form tight cliques that others are discouraged from penetrating. They form tight cliques that others are discouraged from penetrating. How out of sync that is with this gospel fellowship. Jesus, with open arms, is drawing a people to himself, the broken, the crushed, the disenfranchised, the wealthy movers and shakers who finally put it all down and say, I need Jesus. His arms are open, and ours should be as well in every area of life. We can have a small group Bible study that's the opposite of this. It's a wall that won't let anybody in. We can have insular social gatherings that don't welcome others in, or they refuse to branch out, or they say, you're a Christian, but you're not my person. Now, I realize there's a place for close friendship, and there's a place where small group conversation is necessary for some privacy to limit it at times. I recognize there's a lot to fill in here, but I think we should always be watchful. Am I, as a Christian, open to the fellowship of God's people? Wherever they are, whoever they are, am I a welcoming person? Such a spirit is out of sync with the gospel when we are insular. We won't allow others to penetrate our group. Paul said, I want to come into your group. I want to be with you. I want to pour out my teaching, my instruction, my help, and I want us to build one another up in the faith because it's about Jesus. It's not about our separate groups. Closing out the instruction of the book, verses 16 and 17, announce now the theme of Romans. But just in the immediate context of this sermon, in verses 8 through 17, we witness a second characteristic evidence of a life centered on the conquest of the gospel. 
a spirit of fellowship among gospel believers, we find in verses 8 through 15. Secondly, a spirit of confidence in the gospel's power, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why would the Apostle Paul even think of being ashamed of the gospel? Why would he put that there? How could such a thought enter his mind? I think the answer is probably not primarily psychological. That he, like all of us, was tempted at times to cower in fear before the lost. And certainly for him, facing that in a way few of us ever have, where knowing that raising his voice for Christ might mean that he is physically beaten, stoned, thrown in prison, or something of the like. There's there's a certain shame that's there. I don't think that's what he's aiming at here, contextually, and in all of his writing. He probably speaks more of an intellectual and cultural embarrassment. The notion that an obscure Jewish rabbi living on the fringes of the empire and dying as a common criminal, virtually friendless, that this Jew with no army was the incarnate Son of God. That's a tough message in Rome. The place of power. That this Son of God died as a criminal and then rose again, taking on flesh again when being delivered from flesh is what every Greek philosopher is instructing us to want. This is all wrong on a thousand levels for those who embrace Greek religion and philosophy or who followed the Jewish rabbis for that matter. You put all those people together, that pretty much covers most people. And so the gospel can be a source of shame. It can be a source that is going against the stream. It's going against the culture. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I recognize he's no dumb guy. He's fully aware where the gospel is in conflict with Greek philosophy and pagan religion. He he understands how it is in conflict with Rome's sense of power. But I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed because when I look at it, it is the power of God for salvation. Connect that to verse 4. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power. Remember last week we emphasized it's the in power that's important there. Obviously it's important that He's the Son of God, but He's the eternal Son of God. It's after His resurrection that He's revealed to be the Son of God in power, not in humiliation. I think Paul is drawing on that theme here. It is the power of God for salvation. Christ is risen. He is the conquering, reigning Lord, and He is drawing out a people for His name. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That message, that piece of news is the power of God to save souls. What Christ has done, what His death means, His victory over the grave, this cosmic message is the operative power of God to open blind eyes and transform sinners into God's children. The gospel message has the power of God to save us. It's not raw power. It's not power for power's sake. It's not power meant to help us merely gloat. 
It is power that saves and transforms. And this message is that power. I don't really care, ultimately, Paul says in a sense, what Greek philosophers think. I don't care what pagan religion demands. This message changes people. It transforms. It brings forgiveness. It saves us. Saves us from what? It is the power of God for salvation from what? Or to what? You know that at the end of the day, what we're saved from is God. We're saved from God. More specifically, God's righteous judgment against sinners. We're saved from His just wrath against us through the message of the gospel. And of course, we are also saved unto something. We are saved unto fellowship with God as forgiven saints. And what an unusual power this gospel is as it rescues us from the judgment of God and as it brings us as holy people into fellowship with Him. What an unusual power it is. It is a power, we are taught, that is made perfect in weakness. It is a power, we are taught, that is proclaimed by people poor in spirit. It is a power that finds wealth in poverty, joy in sorrow, and life in death. It is a power unleashed by the one who was forsaken by God and afflicted. This is no earthly power. Yet the power of the gospel is able to save everyone who believes, of all who believe. It is for the Jew first, he says. Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jew first is a point that Paul will develop at great length in Romans chapter 9 through 11. It's not a popular notion, honestly, among Gentile Christians throughout history, nor is it a particularly popular notion today, but God's electing purposes targeted Israel in a unique way. And even the gospel here, after a quarter century of preaching it to Gentiles, Paul says it starts first with the Jews. I'll have to work out what that means, but obviously it includes Gentiles as well, and that's Largely from, as far as I know, 100% of this gathering here today. We gather as Gentiles. Maybe there's a few at Jewish heritage that I don't know about. Praise God. But here in this cold tundra of the Northland, so far away from Jerusalem, we gather as the conquest of Christ. To all who believe, this message, this piece of news, this external salvation, to all who believe it, there is salvation. The Jew first, but also to the Greek. To here being, I think, meaning the Gentile. Why does the power, why does the gospel empower salvation? Here's the reason, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For it is the righteousness of God. We could spend a lifetime studying, investigating the meaning of the righteousness of God. 
And there's an immense amount of debate as to how we should understand it and how we should take it. But I believe that God's righteousness is that attribute of God by which He always does what is right. We don't use the word righteousness in our daily language, and so it's a tough word for us. But just take the first part of the word and always cling to that. God always does what's right. That's His righteousness. He does what is right, but it has a hue to it. The right deeds of God, the right virtue of God, is always relational. That's the hue that righteousness delivers as we understand it in the New Testament documents and even from the Old Testament. He always does what is right by always acting in sync with the glory of His name in relationship to His people. So there is a tension in the word. Because sometimes God's righteousness demands judgment. Sometimes His righteousness extends a standing of forgiveness to sinners. But leaving that to the side for now, and Paul will develop it at great length, God's righteousness means that He always does what is right and that He always honors the glory of His name. And those two are the same thing. He always does what is right which means that he always glories, glorifies his name. His righteousness may issue a law. It may punish sin. It may protect the weak. It may forgive a sinner. It may rescue the lost and a thousand other things as he relates to sinners. But God's righteousness is the attribute of his very character by which he reaches out to sinners to bring them into a right standing with him in a way that is always right. So the gospel's power to save is in the fact that it is the righteousness of God, that it reveals, rather, the righteousness of God. God always does what is right, and this gospel brings us into that right relationship with Him in the right way. Again, a sideline of application, but I think worthy to grab onto here. God always does right that's his very essence that's his the attribute one attribute of who he is i just encourage you follower of jesus don't blame god for anything every once in a while there's some christian teacher that rises up to say it's okay to blame god which i read to be it's okay to say that God is not righteous. He can't do wrong. He's never done wrong to you or to anyone else. And it is really unsafe to put a finger in God's face and charge Him with wrongdoing. I can show you in writing Christians who teach this. It's frightening. You're like an ant raging against a fire. He's never wrong. Don't judge the righteous judge. Now there's a lot of things that God does we don't understand. There's things that God permits that hurt us. God is wiser than we are. But to put a finger in the face of God and say, you have done me wrong... is folly in capital letters. 
He's right always. Such truth about God is revealed. It says here in verse 17, from faith to faith. This challenging phrase draws from Habakkuk 2. Without diving into the debate, I believe it is a figure of speech. There's a lot of different ways to take what faith and faith is. But I think it's just a figure of speech. Righteousness is entirely a matter of faith. And this is important. It's a matter of faith from start to finish, from beginning to end. Faith, faith, faith. I think that's what he's saying. It's revealed for faith, for faith. From faith, for faith. I wouldn't make much of those prepositions. It's a figure of speech. It's all about faith. It's hinged upon faith. So last week we talked about this piece of news. Not who you are, not what you do in religious activity that saves. Faith is not you with a notebook before God saying, tell me what to do and I'll pull it off. Give me the instruction that I need and I'll draw on my own strength to make it happen. That's not what faith is. Faith is you before God with an empty bowl at the soup line saying, fill it. We come to God to hear His Word, to depend upon His person, to say, I'm empty, I've got nothing. I come to you and I ask you to fill me with who you are. That's faith. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed and it's all about faith because the righteous will live by faith. Here again, a phrase that is discussed widely. But it is by faith. By absolute dependent trust in God that one is made righteous and gains eternal life. Eternal life is granted to those who gain a righteous standing before God by trusting Him. Righteousness, eternal life, is granted to those who gain a righteous standing before God by trusting Him. Trusting what He has done. Trusting the news revealed about Christ's death and resurrection. It's not by works that we gain this righteous standing that leads to eternal life. It is by faith, by trusting in Christ's work in our behalf, a point that Paul will develop at great length as the book unfolds. So for you today, perhaps the most significant matter before us is this news. This news of a grand victory that has been won. A power over death. When we play sports, or it gets a lot more serious when we go to war between countries. We kind of show within us the desire for right to prevail as we see it. We show the desire for victory over something bad. Kind of smile about it if it's just a team, but we get really serious if it's another nation, and we get really serious if that nation is harming others. All of that pales in comparison to the enemy of death. And there is news that Christ has defeated death. There is news that His defeat of death is connected to your sin. That Christ's death is a death in the place of sinners. That His death in the place of sinners is made effectual by His resurrection from the dead, by His defeat of the grave. 
And there is in that message a victory over your brokenness, over your sin, over your disobedience to God, over everything that's wrong within you as you come in repentant faith and trust in what He's done. For those who know Him, we are instructed here again of the significance of the fellowship that we have in the Spirit, of the keen interest that we should have in all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, a keen interest in the cause of the gospel worldwide. We are thrilled about the spread of the gospel to other places. We want to know about it when we genuinely appreciate what Christ has done. Because the work that Jesus did on the cross was not merely to deliver me from hell, which it is that, but it is a conquest of His people to draw them in who will be His people in the eternal city forever. I can't love these things and not love what God is doing in this world, how Christ is saving a people. We should be encouraged to that keen interest and there should be a spirit of confidence that we bring out of our gathering together today, away from the contemplation of this text, a confidence in the gospel's power. Think of it again. Talk about it at home groups today. But how is it that this message is the power of God? It's this message that is that power. It's not raw power. Power for power's sake. It is a power that transforms because it has defeated death and sin and Satan. How rich we are. May God find within each of us this spirit. This spirit of unity and oneness and fellowship in the gospel. And this spirit of confidence, not shame, in the power of the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God. May the Lord bring it about by His Spirit. Let's pray together to that end. We ask, Lord, that You will strengthen us to discern what You have revealed by Your Spirit to the church. I pray that you would strengthen us and enable us to trust you and to walk faithfully as your people as we announce this gospel, as we rejoice in it, as it identifies us with your people, as it is our very identity with you in union with our Savior. Reconciled and adopted as your children, representing this power that saves i pray that we would be faithful to proclaim this message and for any separated from christ today may you take these words enliven them and bring anyone separated from christ into saving fellowship with you according to your will as you do always what is right We yield to you, we ask that you would work, and that you would bring about all that you desire for the glory of your name. Through this time together, through the interaction that many of us will have uh, following lunch today, as we further talk about these matters, may you deepen us in them. May your name be praised. Through Christ we pray.